You may be seated, and as you take your seats, I invite you to open up your Bible or the Bible that's in the pew or the Bible on your phone, the YouVersion Bible app, and open up to the Song of Songs. We're on a summer vacation from the story, and if you haven't been with us before, the story is a condensed narrative presentation of the scriptures. We're taking a summer vacation for that. We'll resume it in the fall, and we haven't gone outside the Bible. What we've done is we've gone into what's called the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature is the more poetic, the more reflective, the less story-driven section of the Bible. And being in the wisdom literature leads us today into the Song of Songs. And if you've never read this book, this is a unique member of the Library of Scriptural Wisdom. It's not like any of the other books in this section of the Bible, because it's not about law, it's not about prophecy, it's not about covenant history, it's not even explicitly about wisdom like Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes where we've been before. In fact, as the fifth poet book of poetry in the Bible, the Song of Solomon bears this distinction of being one of only two books in the whole of the scriptures that doesn't mention God at all. So then, what is this book about? If you've never read it before, it's about sex. It's about love. It's about marriage. Now, if that is surprising to you, as it is for some people, the content of this book is so provocative or was once deemed so provocative, it was nearly excluded from the canon of the scriptures. But if you've opened up your Bible, there it is, right smack dab in the middle. Sex, love, marriage. I got to ask this. I did this last service. How many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on Song of Songs? Raise your hand. About what we got before. That's about right. Okay. Here's the good news. By the end of today, you will all be able to raise your hands. You're not excited. Okay. All right. Fine. That's fine. (laughs) We're going to explore together and glean from what I really believe is one of the most unread, most rarely taught, and typically overlooked, and frankly ignored parts of the Bible. And we're going to do so because this book, surprisingly, in, in light of all of I said, I, that I've said, presents us and wrestles with some very fundamental, important, everyday aspects of life. I think we can all agree that we all engage with the concepts of love, marriage, and sex on a regular basis. So, a few ground rules, though, before we begin. The sermon title is intentional. I don't even know if any of you even pay attention to sermon titles. After John's sermon last week, you probably never will again. <laughs> the sermon title is intentional. Today's message is for mature audiences. While I'm not going to be graphic, let me say that right from the outset, I am going to be frank in my reflection on this book. So let me say if this subject matter is not appropriate for you or someone you've brought with you, now's the time to grab coffee and a donut and come back later. (laughs) Second, this is a two-part series. Two parts, please hear that. Some things I talk about today Connor's out of here. It's okay, Connor. I understand. (laughs) This is a two-part series. Some things I talk about today may lead to questions that you have that I may address next week. So please be patient. But then again, either today or next week, I may not answer all the questions that come to your mind from this book. And I want to encourage you not to stuff those questions or lose them, but to talk. Conversation Born out of a sermon is not a bad thing. Honestly, that's what we're going for, for conversation to come out of a message. And I want to say to you personally that I am willing, if needed, to talk further with any and all of you about what we cover these next two weeks or anything we don't. Finally, 
have no fear. Have no fear as we go forward this morning. And I say this because sex isn't a topic we often talk about in the church, let alone as the church. And if we do talk about sex, it's often with an attitude of avoidance, of fear, or of guilt and shame. And there'll be none of that today. Today is about healing. Today is about hope. Today is about encouragement. From my way of thinking, if God clearly isn't afraid to talk about love and sex, why are we? So what I hope you will get this morning, what I hope I pray will happen is that in looking at this book, it will resolve some misunderstandings and some frankly inaccurate teaching that we've perpetuated as part of our faith for a long time when it comes to love, marriage, and sex. So with that being said, let me give you a little context to this book if you haven't read it or haven't read it in a long time. Okay, there are numerous interpretations of Song of Songs, most of which attempt to impose meaning on the book. They attempt to impose meaning on the book either as a story or as an allegory. I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to engage the text this morning as it is written in its plainest sense. And if you were to read the, this book, you're going to see very quickly, it's not a linear story. While Song of Songs has an introduction and a conclusion, there is no explicit narrative design. What that means is there's no plot, okay? Things, scenes shift back and forth between the woman and the man at different stages of their relationship, and it's not always in a linear sequence. What we have in front of us, what we're looking at this morning in the Song of Songs is an anthology of love songs, of love poetry. So rather than dissecting this or trying to force this into some kind of narrative structure, I want you to see that this is really what we have in front of us is an exchange of love notes. Love notes that we get to read that are meant to be absorbed as snapshots of a relationship. Back in my day, we would have called this a mixtape, right? <laughs> Beth and I, you may or may not know, have dated since high school. And when we were dating for, for a, early on in our relationship, I lived in New York and she lived in California. And this is back where long distance phone calls were expensive and plane fares were even more expensive. And so we would write notes and we would make tapes that we would send back and forth to each other where we would record songs that reminded us of our love. Crazy thing is, these things still exist. They're hidden somewhere in our basement. My children would probably die if they found them. <laughs> but that's what this is. This is a, this is a, this is a mixtape. But rather than the lovers choosing songs that have already been written, they write their own songs declaring their love for each other. And what's amazing is if you could read this in the original Hebrew, this, these poems, these songs are filled with words, scores of words, not found else, anywhere else in the Bible. The language of the book, and you can pick this up in English for sure, is extravagantly poetical. It's, it's both figurative and metaphorical, but it's also very compact. And what I mean by that is a lot is expressed with just a few words. Through, there are allusions in this, these poems to 25 plants, 10 animals, and four places, all of which have connections to romance. The man and the woman in these poems openly describe their emotions, their passions, their appearances, as well as their vulnerability as they desire each other, as they show affection to each other. Some more context. The context of their relationship is one of betrothal, engagement, of marriage and then married life, but again, not presented in a linear pattern. And how do we know this? We implicitly know this is the context of their relationship by a couple, for a couple of reasons. First, 
the cultural setting of this poem. This may be different for us, but back in the day, and I'm not just talking for Israelites, I'm talking about the surrounding cultures as well. Back in the day when poems and songs like this were written, understand, sex, love and sex within the context of marriage was the norm. Premarital or extramarital sex was not encouraged, it wasn't advocated, it wasn't celebrated. So we know that this is in the context of engagement, marriage, and married life. But even more than that, within these songs, this anthology, one of the songs specifically will refer to a marriage ceremony and a wedding night. Beyond that, it's, we can also glean this from the distinctive way that the two lovers refer to each other. Sometimes it's hard to track. Our English translations have the he and the she, but sometimes it's hard to track if you looked at it in Hebrew who's speaking. And the way you break that down is the bridegroom, the husband, always refers to his wife, to her, as my love. Whereas the bride, the wife, always refers to her husband as my beloved. One more thing before we dive in. You'll notice as you read through these poems, these songs, this man, this woman, this husband, this wife are not named. This is important because sometimes this book is called not just the Song of Songs, but the Song of Solomon. And what I want to tell you is I will bet a year's worth of my pay that Solomon is not the man in these poems, in these songs. You may ask, how do I, how, why, why do I think that? Well, the first thing you'll notice in these songs, in these poems, is Solomon is indirectly mentioned, just a smattering of times, but he never speaks. Interestingly, and we'll pick up on this later, the predominant speaking voice in these poems is the woman. Second of all, throughout these poems, you can't miss this. These two lovers declare over and over again, they are the only ones in the world for each other. And if you've been with us in the story or know anything about Solomon, that automatically should be a red flag for you. <laughs> They're the only ones in the world for each other. Solomon would be an odd candidate for writing these songs because it would be fairly obvious to say that he wasn't mag 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 uh, monogamous at all. <laughs> See, I was even struggling. You might recall Solomon had in the ballpark of 700 wives, and before you go, oh, but those were politically arranged marriages. Those were just marriages of, for politics. Okay, beyond the 700 political marriages he had, Solomon also had, uh, at last count, an additional harem of 300 concubines on retainer. Solomon did not write this song. <laughs> it may have been written for him. Hey, Solomon, try this. But <laughs> Solomon did not write this song. The man and the woman... The husband and the wife, I want to argue, are intentionally not named because they, they are intended to represent every man and woman, every husband and wife, so that we can identify with them. Some other figures, real quickly, who will appear at times in these songs, in these poems. There are the daughters of Jerusalem. They're called, in your translation, the friends. These are all, all the single ladies? These are all the single ladies. <laughs> and they're called the friends because really, even though they're called the daughters of Jerusalem, it's not just the single ladies, it's the single men and women. They're like the third per person witnesses to this relationship. They're disciples of the woman and the man, meaning they're learning about how to engage these realities of love, marriage, and sex. And then smattered also in there, sometimes you hear some references to the woman's family, her mom and her brothers. So that sets the scene. With your Bibles open, let's experience a little sampling of this mixtape. And we'll just stick with chapter one, because that'll do. So chapter one, right from verse one, it says Solomon's Song of Songs, and then it dives right in. Here we go. She, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And we'll jump to verse 9 so you can get a little bit of his side of the, of the story. He, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Back to she, while my king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards and Getty. Back to he, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. She, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. And this, as surprising as it may be, is the word of the Lord. You're a little slow on that one. Is it getting hot in here? Is it just me? Woo! And that's just the first chapter. Man, what you see as you read through these poems, and again, I really say no fear at all, no awkwardness. I find this, this book very, very refreshing and encouraging because what we see in these ballads of longing and fulfillment are songs no less compelling or revealing than some of our classic love tracks. I don't know if you've ever made a mixtape. I don't know if you, if you did what you'd put on there, but these resonate. They're tender, they're passionate, they're sensual. And yet, even while you may give me that, you may still sit here and be like, man, can we like talk about this at Seacliff? Because at church, this is just weird, you know? Yeah, okay, I'll give you that these poems' reflection on the joyous, mysterious, challenging nature of romantic love, that's all great, that's here, but what's this doing in the Bible? What wisdom can we glean from this? And what I propose to show you now, whether you're married or single, whether you're married or you're single, single by choice or by circumstance, is that there are some things we can glean from this anthology of love poetry about sex, more broadly about romantic love, that are helpful to us, insightful to us wherever we are, because these are part of our everyday lives. These are realities that we live in day in and day out. So, one of the very first things right out of the gate I want you to see from this book is that the Song of Songs affirms romantic love is physical. Romantic love is physical. In each and every one of these songs, both the man and the woman tastefully, yet, let's be honest, graphically express the physical attraction, the pursuit, and the pleasure of two becoming one in marriage. And their celebration of each other is drawn from the imagery of Israel's landscape, agriculture, and shepherding. In the original Hebrew, if you could read it, the words that they select are not just because they refer to beautiful things, but the words in and of themselves sound beautiful. In English, I think we can pick this up, sight is a big deal in these poems. Sight is used for conscious admiration, but if you really dive in and just really absorb these songs, smell and taste are also invoked to capture the intoxicated moods of these lovers. Some more samplings beyond what we read. We read that they desire to go to the vineyards together that are in bloom. The man's body is to the woman like an apple tree in whose shade she delights to eat his sweet fruit. The woman's body is a fragrant garden and he browses among her lilies. 
Elsewhere, his cheeks are described like beds of spices that intoxicate her, whereas for him, her navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Whoo! Dang. These poems unabashedly exalt the joys of physical courtship and consummation in the context of marriage. And for me, in loudly and proudly rejoicing in human sexuality, the Song of Songs challenges us as the church to remember and to represent an embodied view of romantic love rather than a disembodied one. We tend in the church when we talk about romantic love to fragment, to put the body and spirit in opposition to each other as the body being some lesser or baser thing of, oh, if we have to deal with it, we will, where the spirit is greater. In the Song of Songs, it's integration, not separation. It's, it, they're together. In the midst of all these exotic and frankly at times erotic images of precious fruits and spices, what both of these lovers emphasize strongly is they completely belong to each other, not just in body, but body and soul. By comparing each other to what people believe to be beautiful and comforting, these songs resonate God's affirmation that romantic love between a man and a woman is physical. In the affirmation of the bodies of these two lovers, we receive a biblical truth that we've lost, that we've ignored or misrepresented even. And it's this, sex is good. Can I say that in church? Sex is good. Sex is good. Our physicality, our sexuality should not be something that's taboo to us. It should not be something that we shame. It should not be something that we despise. It should not be something that we abuse as something base. And if you think about it, we don't need Song of Songs alone to tell us that. Think about it. It's common sense. After all, God conceived, God created, and has blessed us as physical sexual beings. Our physicality, our sexuality is not a result of the fall this is how God has created us. Therefore, our physicality, our sexuality is an integral part of our human experience. For us to deny that, for us to hide from that, for us to shame that is to deny and hide and shame a part of ourselves, of who we were created to be. In other words, for two who have joined their lives together in marriage, there ought to be beauty and pleasure, not embarrassment or awkwardness in seeing in touching, in taking in each other's bodies and features. That may seem like common sense, but I can tell you, I can't tell you how many couples I've encountered where this is often a big obstacle for them because of their Christians. That's like the biggest struggle in their marriage is the physical aspect of their, of their relationship because they have been taught not to talk about it. They've been taught to avoid it. They've been taught, taught that it's taboo. And yet hear this, God wants us in the context of marriage, to take beauty and pleasure, not embarrassment or awkwardness, in seeing and touching and taking in each other's bodies and features. Think of it this way. God could have made the consummation of marriage and our means of procreation sterile and boring, right? God could have done that. But the Lord made it. God made it. Thrilling and joyous. And here's the thing. It is thrilling and joyous. That thrill, that joy comes by way of the physical. So right out of the gate, the Song of Songs lifts up something we need to hear. We need to talk about that romantic love is physical. But the Song of Songs also reveals that romantic love is physical, but it's also total. Romantic love is total. Romantic love is physical, but it's not just physical. Romantic love is a commitment not just of the body, but of the heart, the mind, and the soul. And one of the things, if we're not overwhelmed by how, again, 
revealing and raw this poetry is, one of the things we'll notice if we read carefully is not all expressions of affection made in the song call attention to physical beauty. Consider what the man says about the woman in chapter four. He declares, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. What? Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. What does that mean? Comb honey is sweeter and more flavorful than honey that's been exposed to air. He goes on to say, milk and honey are under her tongue, meaning that like honey and milk, her speech, her persona is pleasant and good. So when the husband says to his wife, you are altogether beautiful, there is no flaw in you, aka you're hot. He has more in mind than her physical beauty. And the woman reciprocates. Later in chapter five, she says, this is my beloved. And she adds, this is my friend. What attracts them to each other, what draws them together is not just skin deep. Their love for each other is far more encompassing than that. The beauty they perceive in, other, in each other, in other words, is bound not just to sight, but to their soul. They talk both one to another and to the people around them as they talk about each other to the people around them in a sensual way, but also deeply reflective of the character they perceive in each other. As we read through these poems, yes, the two share this erotic, sensual love, but they also share hopes and dreams and aspirations as companions in life. And so the Song of Songs reminds us, in romantic love, a man and a woman become one in every way, not just in the most obvious physical way. In other words, it's not just about the sex. It's not just about the sex. Romantic love is total and what this means for us when we think of romantic love is there ought to be an inseparable connection between the physical, outer beauty and the heart, the mind, the character, the inner beauty of someone to whom we give ourselves romantically. There ought to be an inseparable link. And this is a word that's important for us inside and outside of the church because whether it's obvious to us or unconscious, I don't think we realize in our day and age how easily how often we trivialize romantic love. We trivialize it in our songs, in the songs that are written that we listen to today. We trivialize and we cheapen it in how we even talk to each other as potential partners and spouses. Think about this. Ask yourself, listen, how often our talk, our songs are increasingly filled with objectification. And what I mean by objectification, where in our talk and in our songs, we Google the parts at the expense of the whole, the whole person. And in fact, we've gotten to a place where there's even no subtlety. It's almost obscene, almost obscene. Objectification, my friends, is when we treat another person, when we treat their body as a commodity or a possession. It is to take in another person's appearance without respect, without appreciation for their character. When we peek, when we stare, when we whistle, when we make offhanded remarks, we are keeping that image of that person for our own imagination and use. We're keeping it for ourselves rather than openly speaking, sharing, encouraging, and dignifying that. There's a huge difference there. Because when we objectify when we Google the parts at the expense of the whole, that's not romantic. That's not loving. That's just obscene. And you'll notice in these songs, look at them. The man and the woman celebrate each part, every part of their lover's body, but never crudely. 
tasteful metaphors. Some of you may not appreciate poetry, I do, but these tasteful metaphors, they're intentional. These tasteful metaphors are used both to reveal and to conceal, to reveal the beauty of that person, but also to conceal with some dignity the intimacy of that person, to reveal and conceal the person they describe. These are done in a way that's edifying and protective. Ask yourself, listen to our talk, listen to our songs, and ask yourself if edifying or protective is what comes to mind, let alone tasteful. And then something else that just strikes me when we talk about romantic love as being total, and I, I didn't ca- I've never caught this before, is when you read these songs, when you read these poems, and this is really interesting to me, there are no imposed cultural standards by these lovers in terms of beauty. Think about that. In every culture, we all have our, sort of our, this is what we consider beautiful. Thin, fat, short, tall, and cult- between cultures it differs, but we all have sort of the it, Right? But in these songs, there is no mention of proportions, measurements, body shape. We are given no idea of what these two actually look like. Think about that. And then think about this as if you read it like me. When you're reading it, you probably have in your mind what you think they look like. And what you think they look like probably fits our standard, our definition of beauty, our qualifications. Yet for this man and this woman, it's not about how each other looks It's not about what they look like on the outside. It's about the wholeness of their person. And for me, that is compelling. In pushing past superficiality, in refusing to set physical grades of attractiveness, Song of Songs challenges us against being so shallow. It challenges us to go deeper and wider, to be all in, body, mind, heart, and soul when it comes to romance. So Song of Songs shows us that romantic love is physical, but romantic love is total, and it also shows us romantic love is mutual. For me, this is perhaps the most encouraging, healing to me, is you cannot help, as you read through these poems, the two-way nature of the conversation. The man and the woman share a mutual respect and ardor for each other. In their love together, each of them contributes to the relationship. Each desires the other. Their love is reciprocal. From beginning to end, the lovers sing each other's praises. They offer themselves to each other in enjoying and partaking in their love. Their song, these songs even conclude with this wonderful dual invitation of the lover and the beloved. As this man and this woman playfully and delightfully describe each other and respond to these descriptions, the Song of Songs is teaching us that romantic love is mutual. Interestingly, in the picture we are given of this wife and this husband, as they again invite each other to enjoy and partake in their love, we do not ever witness a hierarchical relationship. We witness a reciprocal one. This is fascinating to me. In these songs, this woman is never shy or submissive. In fact, as I told you already, she speaks more than the man. Through these love songs, fascinating, she is the pursuer as well as the pursued. And that, for me, corrects some really bad theology that I've often gotten in the church. And that's this, romantic love, sex within marriage, and the relationship as a whole is not about the husband first. It's not about a wifely duty. It's not even about an obligation to address your spouse's needs. Song of Songs teaches us that love and sex are not about self-absorbed indulgence for one's own personal gratification, but in fact, love and sex are about the joy of giving gratification. Here in these songs, we witness this couple engage 
Can you believe it? If you read it, they engage in fantasy. They fantasize about each other. They engage in play. They're flirtatious with each other. They engage even in variety in their relationship, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And some of us, we might blush. Some of us are like, oh, that's not appropriate. It is totally appropriate. God encourages it. But such activity, such fantasy, such flirtatiousness, such play, such variety is only possible when the relationship is mutual and not one-sided. Read it. Read it later today. You'll not find one assertion of power or dominance in these songs. Just reciprocity. It's a beautiful thing. They explore together. They learn together. They celebrate together. And all the while, they protect and affirm each other. You'll find that in and behind these words and actions of this man and this woman in creatively, completely, and unabashedly giving themselves to each other, you'll find this deep desire to build each other up to better the other person. In fact, if you really read carefully, what you witness through their mutual delight in each other is that giving actually heightens one's experience, one's joy, one's satisfaction, one's growth. And that's what we need to take away. In our romantic love, it's about mutual esteem. It's about mutuality. It's about reciprocity because mutual esteem and reciprocity breeds confidence in a relationship. It breeds trust. Confidence not only in oneself, trust not only in oneself, but confidence and trust in each other. Romantic love is physical. Romantic love is total. Romantic love is mutual, reciprocals, to be good for both, for the betterment of each other. And finally, we see in Song of Songs that romantic love is exclusive. Song of Songs describes a love marked by fidelity and exclusivity over and over again. We hear a refrain in the songs that pops up every now and again where you hear, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His desire is for me. Not his desire is for her and for her and for her and me. Her desire, his desire is for me. I am my beloved's. I am not just his and his and his and my beloved's. I am my beloved's. That's it. And he is mine. This man and this woman, you can't miss this. Have eyes, have hearts for no one else. The exclusivity of their love for each other, this exclusivity is reflected through their mutual commitment to the covenant of marriage. Through these various songs, we witness that married life for them is bliss. But here's what's really interesting. It's bliss, but it's not without its challenges. If you read these poems carefully, you'll notice that while they relish each other, their married life together, their relationship together is not without its challenges. In these poems, you get glimmers of how they experience separation from each other. They're not always in sync geographically. They're not always in sync physically. They're not always in sync emotionally. They encounter obstacles from well-intentioned family. Can I get an amen, right? They, get, they encounter obstacles from interfering outsiders. And nevertheless, despite these challenges to their relationship, the man continues to sing of his love for his bride. The woman in response sings of her love for her beloved. Their love will not be overthrown by jealousy. It will not be overthrown by separation. It will not be overthrown by circumstances, whatever they are. And what you're supposed to see is what enables their love to endure like that is the exclusivity, the singular monogamous commitment they have to each other. As instituted in the Garden of Eden, 
Marriage between one man and one woman is the only human relationship that's strictly exclusive. Think about that. No other human relationship allows for only one person. And the Song of Songs shows us practically why marriage is designed this way. It is in the exclusivity of this man and this woman's commitment to and for each other in marriage that creates, that protects, that encourages the widening of the sacred space they share together, the love they have for each other. And here's the thing. For these two lovers, sex is the expression of the exclusivity of their love and their commitment to each other in marriage, not outside of it. In these poems, in other words, we witness God's design of the trinity of romantic love being this way. This is how it was intended. Love leads to marriage, leads to sex. The attraction of love leads to the mutual and total giving to each other in love through the exclusivity of the commitment of marriage, which creates the space to be completely vulnerable, naked, if you will, in all senses of the word, to be safe and unified, of which sex is the reflection. The oneness that we see throughout these poems of the bodies of the man and the woman together physically is a reflection of their growing union as husband and wife in giving and forgiving, in selflessly sharing and unconditionally loving each other. We need to really need to meditate on what we're hearing and seeing and absorbing here because we've tended in our day and age to flip the script. What God has joined together, we've separated. We've taken God's trinity of romantic love that's that, that is love leads to marriage, leads to sex, and we've turned it into sex leads to love and marriage. Maybe. Maybe. Sex is going to find us love, and then if love happens, we might get married. But we might not. And what's interesting in the midst of all the celebration, all the rejoicing, and we're going to talk about this more next week, what's interesting is throughout these love poems, there's this repeated re refrain, this repeated advice that the woman in particular gives to the single people. It comes up four different times. And what is this advice that the woman will turn in the midst of the throes of describing her love, celebrating it? She'll turn to the single people and she will say, she will warn, caution three times, don't stir up, don't awaken love until the right time. Don't change the order. Don't change the order. The ideal romance presented by the Song of Songs is one in which a man and a woman allow their relationship to develop in its right timing, in its right progression, where they get to know each other. The real person first to allow their love to grow out of that. They anticipate, make no mistake, they desire each other, but they hold themselves back physically because getting physical too soon interrupts the development of the other aspects of their relationship, of opening up to each other and revealing themselves more and more, letting their love become based on who they are rather than what they've done physically. The Song of Songs dares us it dares us to view sex as more than just another form of pleasure. It dares us to view sex as more than just something we do with just anyone. Sex is the physical manifestation, the sensual joy of binding ourselves, our lives, to another person. Contrary to what we believe, contrary to what maybe some of us are even teaching others, genuine sexual liberation is not liberation from marriage, but liberation in marriage. 
For it is only in the exclusivity and commitment of romantic love sealed by marriage that we truly have the freedom to be truly known and to truly know another person. When I started, you know, I had some conversation talking about this. Everyone said when I was sharing this part, oh, this is the part where you're going to talk about virginity, right? You're going to really hit hard on virginity. I'm really not trying to shake anybody up, but everything I've just said is not so much about virginity as it is about holiness. I want you to hear me say that one more time. It's not so much about virginity as it is about holiness. Don't mishear what I just said. One's virginity, I'm not saying, is something you should take lightly. I'm not saying one's virginity is something you should just cast aside. But what I am saying, and you need to hear this, church, because this is, we just tend to talk about virginity all the time. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a verse where virginity is the end-all, be-all for our Heavenly Father. Virginity is not God's goal. The goal and aim of the Lord is holiness. Now, some of you, having some frame of reference for holiness and seeing that as being a much bigger, broader word, may go, I'll take virginity. Right? Think about the biblical definition of holiness. We've heard some of these def defining words for holiness. Holiness is to be set apart. Holiness is to be without flaw or blemish. Holiness is to, to shine full of glory and awe. So for many of us, this ethereal, sort of otherworldly sense of holiness, it's like, you know what, that's even worse. <laughs> Let's just stick with virginity. But maybe... I can help you. Instead of thinking of holiness in this ethereal, otherworldly sense, let's try to bring down God's goal down to earth for us. And what I want to do is I want to link everything that I just defined holiness as with a different word. Link this idea of holiness, God's goal, with the word intimacy. God's goal, God's desire for you and me is for our holiness. And that holiness is about intimacy. You and I experiencing and sharing real, deep, lasting relationship where we are fully known and we fully know him. God's desire for us to be holy is about this intimacy of being set apart. And that, and that idea of being set apart means God wants us to have the intimacy of realizing and living into the fact that we are beloved. Beloved. We're not just to live as anybody. We are to live with the intimacy of knowing we are his child, that we have been dearly loved. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, not by accident, but with a purpose. God's desire for us to be holy has to do with the intimacy of not necessarily being perfect without flaw or blemish. It's not about us being perfect. It's about being made perfect. God's goal of holiness, of intimacy, is us experiencing the cleansing that he offers to us, of letting our true beauty come through the reality of his forgiveness. It's about becoming able to experience the intimacy of being able to be naked, who we were created to be, and to do so without shame. God's desire for us to be holy, to shine full of glory and awe, is about the intimacy of living into and out of our blessedness, our blessing, it's the intimacy of experiencing the joy and pleasure of being in communion with God and with each other. God's goal is, is holiness, and that holiness is intimacy. Don't you see? Love, marriage, and sex, the mutuality, the totality, the exclusivity, the commitment of these three realities together in that sequence, that's the closest bridge we have to experiencing the kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy, the kind of holiness God desires for us and with us. And that's a word, regardless of your age, we need to hear because so many of us, in our hunger for intimacy, 
So many of us in our intense desire to make a connection, you know? So many of us, just to experience at least a momentary delight, have filled that God-given space through the loneliness of pornography. We filled it through the counterfeit, dulled, and forgotten passion born of alcohol. We filled it just even with a flirtatious affair that only exists in our imagination, our fantasy life. And here's the thing, we need to stop accepting cheap substitutes. Sex is not the means to supercharge intimacy. Intimacy is built through a long, true, exclusive relationship that leads to the commitment of marriage. That's the means that brings the full pleasures and joys of sex. Waiting is worth it. Because true, lasting intimacy is worth it. Waiting is worth it because you're worth it. Because the level of intimacy you give to another person ought to match the level of commitment that they are willing to make to you and vice versa. Virginity is all well and good. We can talk about that till the cows come home. But virginity, as good as it is, if that's the goal, it's too narrow. It's too static. If virginity is the goal, what do we say to someone who's been raped? God forbid. If virginity is the goal, what do we say to someone who's been through a divorce? If virginity is the goal, what do we say to someone? And many people can fall into this category of having a sexual indiscretion. And here's the thing. If we're so caught up on virginity, if virginity is the goal, Jesus, I think, blew it out of the water, the whole idea that we can keep our virginity when he said that committing adultery begins by just a lustful look and a thought. The minute you look lustfully at another person and have a thought, you've committed adultery, which if I put the math together means you're not a virgin. You may be a virgin physically, but you're not a virgin in the sense that God means. If virginity is all we want to talk about, and yet we want to deny the truth that every human being, I don't care who you are, every human being struggles with sexual thoughts, feelings and behaviors contrary to the heart and in conflict with the will of God long before they get married and sometimes even when they are married. If we're not going to acknowledge that, if we're just going to make it all about virginity, where does that leave us? Game over? No coming back? Defeat? I think part of the reason why we don't talk about sex in the church is because we have put such a shame and a stigma on that. We think that that's just a young people problem. And so we guilt and shame young people about sex and young people become old people who carry baggage. And the way that they deal with their baggage is to try to, try to scare the bejesus out of the younger people. And on the cycle goes. This became clear to me a couple years ago. Totally two different churches, not here when I had an 85-year-old man come into my office, he said he wanted pastoral counseling and prayer, and I was absolutely willing to give it. He had lost his wife several years ago, and I was in no way prepared when what he wanted pastoral care and counseling for was the fact that he was addicted to pornography. 85 years old. And I admit my own bias, my own stereotype. I'm like, that's not an 85-year-old problem. That's a 20-year-old problem. That's a 30-year-old problem. When you get that age, you're not looking at pornography. This is not limited to any generation what we're talking about here. If anything, the older we get, the more we have this need to be set free, to be healed. Can we talk about sex in the church? Can we have this conversation? Don't we ha don't, do we actually believe the gospel can touch this very tangible, everyday aspect of our lives? My friends, this isn't a conversation we need to hide from. This isn't a conversation that we need to be in guilt and shame about. The reality is our gospel is about resurrection. We believe in life after death. We believe in victory over defeat. We believe in a God who makes all things no new. 
God's goal for us is holiness, and we need to celebrate that. We need to pursue it. But here's the thing. Our Father's desire for us is to experience true and lasting intimacy. That's what he wants, for us to be known and to know, to to know each other, to be naked and unafraid, to be filled with peace and security rather than plagued with guilt or shame. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I need that in my marriage. I need that as an individual sexual being. I need to know that God can touch, can heal, can minister to that aspect of my life. And I need to know that God can love me through that. And I don't have to wonder because the Bible tells me so. I want you to hear me this morning as I close. I want you to hear me this morning if this is stirring up things for you. I want you to hear me this morning if you haven't waited. I want you to hear me this morning if virginity is no longer your goal. I want you to hear me this morning as I talk about holiness. I want you to hear me this morning if something has been taken away from you. I want you to hear me this morning if you've allowed, if you've chosen to take something away from yourself. I want you to hear me this morning that if any of those things apply to you this morning and any things I haven't covered when it has to do with our physicality, our sexuality, I want you to hear this morning something that you need to hear that we're not saying enough in the church. If you're fallen, if you're broken, if you're fragile, if you're hurting, if you've been abused, you are not forsaken. You are not any less a child of God, of our Heavenly Father. You have not, because of whatever has been done to you or you've done unto yourselves, you are not any less a child of God. You have not passed some point of no return. You are not beyond the reach of redemption. And if you have been caught up in saving yourself from marriage, and maybe that's no longer a possibility, I want you to hear this. It's not about saving yourself from marriage as much as it is realizing God can, God has, and God will save you no matter where you've been. No matter what you've done to yourself, no matter what's been done to you. Holiness is the goal, the desire of God. But hear this, holiness like everything from God is a gift of grace. Did you hear that? Holiness is a gift of grace. Holiness is not a human achievement. Holiness is not about what you do or don't do as much as it is about what our Father does. Our Father who lovingly sets us apart. Our Father who restores us through the beauty of his forgiveness. Our Father who blesses us with the reality of his ongoing presence through word, spirit, and sacrament. Be hopeful, be encouraged be healed. We're going to talk about this some more next week, but by the end of today, I hope that you can see that the Song of Songs contains no less of the gospel than any other book in the Bible. Through its passionate reflection of romantic love, love that is physical, love that is total, love that is mutual and exclusive, through the care and tenderness, the transparency, intensity and delight between a husband and a wife, we get a glimpse of the redemption the reconciliation, the healing, and the wholeness that the Lord desires, that the Lord promises for all of us in Jesus Christ. Amen.